0: is one that's very familiar to most of of us. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. And and that text uh, tells about the birth of Jesus Christ. And it tells us that, of course, that uh, the angel had made the announcement to Mary that a, a child was going to be born and that child would save his people from their sins. And so the... Illustration that I have used, I thought was was one that's appropriate because it's as if God had sent Jesus to this earth for the purpose of rescuing us and taking us out of sin. Now that's not a nice subject. Sin is not a nice subject. It's a tough subject. It's a hard subject but it's one that we have to face whether we believe in God or not because sin is prevalent and it's pervasive and uh, it's everywhere and it's growing in popularity and strength. And sin hurts. It hurts everyone. We think of sin in in various ways. As a matter of fact, I have spoken about sin in terms of it being sort of like the COVID-19 virus. And that is that it infects us and it begins to eat at us from within. It destroys our moral fiber. It works against our ethics. It destroys our values. Uh, it's a loss of, of everything that makes us better instead of worse. It's a destroyer of our happiness and it kills peace. It thrives in confusion and chaos Sin is prevalent. It's always there. And it's getting worse and worse. That's what Paul said in Second Timothy 3 at verse 13. I, I don't want to alarm anyone, but I think if we are aware of what's going on around us, we know that sin is not diminishing, it's, it's expanding. Anyway, Paul said, Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Part of the problem with sin is that it can defy description. It it can become charming to us. It can it can become indistinguishable. It has a plethora of disguises. The devil is cunning. We we make a mistake if we think that the devil is a, a dupe or a dope. He's not. He's cunning, he's smart, and he he can deceive us into thinking that sin is is okay, or that it's not as bad as we might conceive it to be. Part of our major problem with understanding sin is that we often uh, want to define it on a social or an international basis or a national basis. We like to think of sin as, uh, as we would think of a crime. We think of sin like murder or we think of sin like stealing or fraud or burglary or pillaging or plunder we think of sin in those those very large terms and we think of it in in terms of the the most heinous acts that we can imagine in the most egregious acts against society we consider those to be sinful acts that society considers to be harmful it's what we generally will accept as sin. And yet, that's, that's a false sense of security. Sin is broader than that. And it's deeper than that. And it actually has worse consequences. because Those are consequences of sin, obviously, those larger uh, categories. But still, sin underlies these and promotes and predicts and, and, uh, and facilitates the larger acts that we can visualize as being extremely harmful. The government cannot define sin for us. Society cannot. And government is actually just the, the uh, attempt of humanity to regulate society. And God said that government's good as long as government is doing good. Now, I'll call your attention to a text in Romans chapter 13, beginning verse 1 through 5. And in this text, Paul is writing, and he says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. He's talking about government. He said, God ordained this. He ordered this. He said, the power is of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resists the power... Resist the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. So when society is attempting to govern itself and moderate itself and control itself and its its members, then this is this is God's intent. He wants society to be peaceful and calm and orderly. He says rulers are not a terror to good works but to evil, so as long as government maintains good order and not evil, obviously it's ordained of God. There are times when the government is is wrong. And that's why we have to be careful when we say we can define sin by what the government calls sin or what the powers call sin, what society is defining as sin. He says, Will you then be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and you shall have praise of the same. And so he keeps modifying and modulating the concept of what the government can do when he says, when it does good. When the government's doing good. Now, like we said before, the government doesn't always do good because the government is made up of people like us. And if we're sinning, then we're going to cause those that we're involved with to commit the same type of sin. He says, if you do that which is evil, be afraid for he bears not the sword in vain. He is the minister of God a revenger to execute judgment or execute wrath upon him that is evil. Wherefore, you must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. So we mind what the government tells us, because the government is intending to order society and keep us in restraint and keep us where we can relate to one another without harm. In the eventuality that civil law and criminal law conflict with the Bible then we have a mandate from God that we must obey God rather than man. So when civil government tells us that something is right and the Bible says it's wrong, then we take our position with the Bible, what God has said. That's what Peter and the apostles said in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, when the authorities, which was the government at that time, said, don't talk about Jesus anymore. And Peter said, we ought to obey God rather than man. Sin is broader than a a civil definition of, of right and wrong. The Bible defines sin as a mistake. Sin is an error. We have done something wrong. And the Bible tells us what is right and what is wrong. Society comes along and says, wait, we don't believe that's right, or we don't believe that's wrong, and so it's confused. For instance, the government may tell you that it's all right for you to be a homosexual. The Bible says that's not right. The, the government says it's okay if we will, if we will uh, authorize and legalize same-sex marriages. And the Bible says that's not right. The government says it's okay if you, if you want to, uh, whatever you want to do to express yourself in a way that's not legitimate. And yet the Bible says that we, we need to make sure that we're not harming someone by what we do. Now, the government and religious authorities have had problems over the years. And the government has sometimes stepped in and said, "Okay, uh, here's something you shouldn't be doing. You shouldn't pray in schools." Well, that's wrong. I believe I believe that prayer should be allowed. But at the same time, the government says we can't do that. So we pray without, whether we pray in school or not, we we continue to pray. They have not told us that we can't pray, but they've simply. Uh, Prohibited prayer in public places, uh, for instance, in our schools. But it, it, our historical past is checkered with problems between the church and state. The Spanish Inquisitions, the Roe versus Aid Authorities or decisions and so forth have, have brought the world into conflict with the Bible. The major fact is clear what the Bible describes as sin is harmful, period. It hurts people. Now that's what I want you to take a look at when we look at that, at that uh, rescue uh, image. Jesus came to save us from our sins. We can't think of sin in the abstract. Sin is not something that happens to us. Sin is something that we do. Sin is a mistake that I've made. So when the Bible tells me that Jesus came to save me from my sins, it's telling me that he came to save me from myself. Not from you, but from myself. You can sin against me, and that has no effect on my relationship to God. But when I sin against you, it has, a relation, it has an effect on my relationship with you and with God. So my behavior is not an abstract sort of a thing that says here is sin, and it exists somewhere apart from the individual. It doesn't. Sin exists in me. Now, obviously, it can be a disease. It can, it can infect me, and it can affect you, and I, my behavior can affect you too. But it's still a a personal act of disobedience, a personal act that harms you, that harms people. Sin harms people. I selected this illustration also. It's called a caduceus. That's the the emblem generally taken by the medical profession. And the caduceus was... uh, was, has been adopted and used to to show that uh, we are we can look at the medical profession for help and healing. Now the motto is is attributed to Hippocrates generally, and he lived in the fourth century before Christ. He was a Greek he's a Greek physician, and he had an oath. Now that first do no harm is really not part of that oath, although it has been accepted as part of it. And the principle is there, and the premise is there, and, it, and the idea is there, and it's a good idea. Most physicians in this country will take an oath, and some of them take the Hippocratic Oath, the one that Hippocrates developed. That particular phrase is not in it, but it's there, the concept is there. And I think there's something like 70 to 80 percent of the, of the uh, medical professionals in this country that take that oath. The others take another type of oath, but they take an oath. And the oath is to do no harm. And that's probably why we're having some problems under this COVID-19 situation, because the medical professions and professionals, either those involved in the science of medicine or those involved in the administration of it, do not want to promote or prescribe a cure that's going to hurt you and do no more harm than good. So they have an oath; they're working on an oath. They they don't want to harm, and that actually that that particular oath that model could very well apply to Jesus, and that that's why I want to bring him up in this context, because we're told in one Peter chapter two at verse twenty two that Jesus did no sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth. Well, that tells me that Jesus did not hurt a single soul. He did not hurt a single person. Nobody. And yet he was accused of hurting people. In John chapter 8 at verse 46, Jesus actually confronted a group of people that were trying to harm him. And his, his question to them was, which of you convinces me or convicts me of sin? He said, if I say the truth, why you, why do you not believe me? He actually challenged them. He said, you tell me where I have hurt you. Where, where have I hurt you? And that's what sin does. Sin hurts people. In John chapter 10, at verse 31 and 32, it says, Then the Jews took up stones again to stone Him. They wanted to kill Him. It was a mob, and a mob mentality. They were going to kill Jesus. They were going to stone Him to death. And His comment to them was, He said, Which, which of the good works that I have showed you from My Father, for which of these are you going to stone Me? What have I done to you? How have I harmed you? How have I hurt you? And, of course, they, they had no response. Now, that, that's amazing to me. Jesus is the only man who lived on this earth that never hurt a person. Never hurt a person. In Matthew chapter 26, the religious leaders brought Jesus into their custody, and they brought him into their council, and they began to ask him questions. And part of those questions had to do with whether or not he had done something wrong, that he had hurt someone. So in chapter 26 of Matthew, verse 59 and 60, the text says, Now the chief priests and elders and all the council saw, thought, looked for a false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. They were looking for a fault with Jesus. They couldn't find one. Now it wouldn't take people too long to find something wrong with me. That I have done something wrong. That I've made a mistake and that I've hurt somebody by my sin. But they couldn't find anything in Jesus. So they brought him to Pilate who was the prelate over the uh, Roman government and who was in, in control of that district of Rome. In control of those people in Jerusalem. And in John 18.38 there was a a question going back and forth and the question was, the, the, who, was who was saying who was a king and the, the rulers were saying this man is saying he's a king and Jesus is is not saying anything about it and Pilate's trying to figure out are you a king or aren't you a king and so he, he asked him the question he says what is truth he said what's, what's right and wrong who, who's telling the truth here well, if Jesus lied, then his lie would have hurt someone. But Jesus didn't lie. And Jesus said, when he said this, he went out, after he talked to Jesus, he went out and looked at the mob and he said to the Jews, he said, I find no fault in him. I don't I don't see anything that he's done wrong. When Peter began to preach the gospel and he reached beyond the Jewish community, and he began to preach to those who were called the Gentiles, the Gentile nation, he talked to a household of people under the authority of a Roman centurion who, who was named Cornelius. And Cornelius brought Peter into his home and asked him about Jesus. And Peter said in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38 that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with, with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, and God was with him. Peter was saying, "Jesus never hurt a soul, never hurt anyone." Now I have two texts that I've, that I've selected that that have really given me some some problem over the years, and uh, maybe I maybe I've gotten the the. Uh, concept and context right let's see if we have these two texts involve two different people the first text in john chapter 5 at verse 14 says afterward jesus found him in the temple what well, he found a man that he had healed who he had been crippled for 38 years he had had he'd lain as a beggar at the at the uh, site of a pool and was not able to get up and uh, he he had been crippled for that long period of time. He was a, maybe a paraplegic. He couldn't walk. He was handicapped. And when he found the man, he healed him. And later on, the man came to him and Jesus said this to him. And this is significant because these are the only two places in the New Testament where he says this. He came to him and he said, you are made whole, he told the man who had been crippled. You are made whole, sin no more. Lest a worse thing come upon you. Now, sin no more. I've thought about this over the years and I thought, what could this guy have been doing that was wrong? Here was a man who was handicapped, here was a man who was crippled for 38 years. He was a physically challenged individual. And my question is, who could he have been hurting? Because sin is hurting someone. It hurts someone. Who could he have been hurting? Do you know of any crippled person that could hurt someone? You say, well, if they're crippled, they really can't hurt you. But we're confining sin to physical things, aren't we? I I know a lot of crippled individuals, a lot of handicapped individuals that can hurt people. And they can hurt them deeply. And it doesn't have to be a physical act. And they can hurt themselves. So here you have Jesus saying, quit hurting people. Sin no more. Quit hurting people. And then, the next question, of course that would be a foolish question on my part to say, could this fellow have been hurting anyone? Certainly he could. He could be hurting himself. And he could be hurting his family. He could be hurting the people around him. There are a lot of ways you can hurt someone. The other illustration is a woman that society would characterize as a prostitute. In John chapter 8, And this woman had been taken into custody by different ones, by the Jews. And they brought her to Jesus. They said, we caught this woman committing adultery. Now the Old Testament law required that when a person committed adultery in the city where they could be found could be discovered when a person committed adultery both the man and the woman were guilty and were to be stoned. That's what the Old Testament law required. They didn't bring a man with them they just brought her. But you look at this thing and it when Jesus when everything cleared out and everybody left and nobody decided they wanted to stone her and there's several reasons why I believe they didn't do it but but the main thing was jesus of course Jesus told him he that is without guilt cast the first stone and they began to leave from the oldest to the youngest because they were they were complicit in this somehow whether they set it up and contrived it whatever it might have been they they didn't stone her But think about this just a minute. He told this woman, he said, go and sin no more. Now, the question is, who is she hurting? We sometimes, government, and I want to get back to this point, the government and the society says, well, sexual relations are really crimes without a victim victimless crimes two consenting adults get involved in this therefore it's not a crime but the Bible says it is a sin you are hurting someone you are hurting someone now sin causes suffering that's where I want to get this to I'm not talking about what it does to you I'm talking about what you do to them what you do to other people when you sin. All right. It causes suffering. If the sin is egregious enough and obvious enough, and the law of the land takes control of it, then we know that there are penalties to be paid. Isn't that correct? If you if you plunder, if you riot, if you if you trash Transgress or trespass on someone's property, if you steal someone from something from someone, if you murder someone, if you, if you hurt them, if you harm them physically, the law steps in. but you don't have to go that far to sin. Let me let me give you some illustrations. You can hurt someone sin by stealing their property by a surreptitious method, a sneaky method. You can get somebody's money and steal money from them simply by deceiving them. And you hurt them. You're hurting someone. You can hurt someone by by cheating them out of their possessions. A a deal that you know that you get involved in. Maybe it's a financial deal. Whatever it may be, you can cheat them and you hurt them. You're hurting someone. I'm sure we can understand that. If we lie to people, we can hurt them. We hurt them. We damage them. When I lie to you, I damage you, I hurt you. And we can deceive other people for our advantage, we can do violence, we can bully people, we can intimidate someone, and what I'm doing is, I'm damaging you, I'm hurting you. I I think that should be pretty obvious. I can slander you, I can hurt your feelings, I can tell things about you that are not true, I can hurt your reputation. I can hurt you. What Jesus said was, quit hurting people. That's what he told these two. He told this man that was crippled for 38 years and he said, quit hurting people. And he told this woman, quit hurting people. Who was she hurting? Well, the first thing that jumped into my mind would be her husband. Hurt her husband. Hurt her children. Hurt her family he's hurting someone sin hurts someone we can shame people humiliate people and we're hurting them and we don't have to commit a crime against them to hurt someone but we can hurt them and that's what Jesus he said I came to get you out of that I came to save you from yourself from what you've been doing Quit it, he told these two. And I'm thinking, well, if he told these two, that poor old boy was crippled for 38 years, and yet Jesus looked at him and said, quit hurting people. And here was a woman that was set up, and she was a part of a victim, and he said, quit it, quit doing that. You're hurting people. And that's what Jesus is telling us. Quit doing it. Quit hurting other people. I think that's exactly what he's saying. Not only that, but he's telling us, quit hurting yourself. You know when you sin, you hurt yourself. You destroy your character. You destroy your your reputation. You damage your sense of right and wrong. Whenever you sin, if you take that first step over the boundary, over the line, you're setting yourself up to take the next step. It becomes easier the next step. The next time the next time, and there are always reasons the devil always give enough reasons why you do it there's always justification and rationale for sinning I sin because I lost my temper because now I hurt someone else with it and I hurt myself but it was I had a good reason for it righteous indignation a lot of people like to call it but uh, the Bible says the the uh, the anger the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. It doesn't do it. Anger hurts me and it hurts you. Hurts both of us. We can damage our sense of right and wrong. We can lower our moral standard by sin. We can can, uh, warp our souls. We can damage ourselves. We can forget God when we sin. We forget him and forget that we are made in the image of God. So, The saddest part of all of this that I think is that that when we reach the point where we think who are we hurting and who cares what I do I've heard that so many times with people who have abused drugs and alcohol who am I hurting I'm not hurting anyone It's, it's nobody else's business who am I hurting who cares who cares if if my marriage falls apart, and I'm, I'm, I'm the culprit in it. That I've made things so hard on people, on my mate, that they just can't stand me more. Who cares? I'm just hurting myself. Who cares if I, if, I, if my kids don't like me? Who cares if I, if, I, if I was abusive to them? Who really cares? Well, I'll tell you who cares and who it's hurting. It's hurting the people that love you. That's who it's hurting. It's not going to hurt anybody else. When I, go, when I drive down the road and somebody you know, gives me an obscene gesture that I don't know, it doesn't bother me. But someone I love gives me that gesture, it hurts me. It hurts. Somebody curses me, I don't know them. It, it runs off my back like water off a duck's back. I don't care. But if someone I love, if my wife or my children, or my friends curse me. It cuts me to the heart. So, actually, when we when we sin against someone, and when we sin against ourselves, when we do things to ourselves, hurt ourselves, we are hurting someone else. We're hurting people that love us. And I've heard this too. Well, my parents don't care about me my children don't care about me nobody cares about me. nobody cares what happens to me my friend that's wrong because there's someone that cares someone that cares about you and that's god and every time you sin you break his heart that's the problem now and that's 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 wrong now uh, Sometimes we we, we don't really understand that we're hurting Him as much when we sin, and that it's bothering Him. I know that He loves us, and His heart is full of love for me. And so when I do something that hurts myself and hurts you, it hurts God. And that's, that's what sin does. In Genesis chapter 39, there was a fellow by the name of Joseph. He was a good young man. He was sold into Egyptian bondage by his brothers. He was a young guy, and apparently he he irritated his brothers. And they sold him to a wandering group of of nomads who took him into Egypt and sold him to a man by the name of Potiphar. And Potiphar worked in in the house of Pharaoh, but uh, Potiphar put everything under Joseph's control, because Joseph was a good, honest man with integrity. And during his service there, Potiphar's wife decided she wanted to commit adultery with Joseph. She wanted to get him in bed. And so in this in this context, in Genesis 39, verse 8 and 9, the text says, Joseph... He says, Behold, my master knows not what is with me in the house. He says, He's given me the run of the place, and I take care of everything for him. And he's committed all that he has to my hand. There's none greater in this house than me. So he had everything. And his, his, his master, that is Potiphar, trusted him with everything. He says, Neither has he kept back anything from me but you. He's talking to Potiphar's wife. She's wanting to get him to commit adultery with her. Because you are his wife, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Whose heart was he going to break? Who would know? Potiphar's wife would probably keep it a secret. Joseph would keep it a secret. They wouldn't tell the old man. But, Joseph said, you know, I'm not going to break his heart. I'm not going to do that. So, that's why Jesus came to this earth. He came to help us stop hurting people. Quit hurting people. In John chapter 12, at verse 47 and 48, Jesus said, If any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. Now, he didn't come down to this earth to say, you're wrong and you're wrong and you're wrong. He came down to this earth to say, I want you to quit hurting people and I'm going to help you get to that point. That's what I'm going to do. Get you to stop doing that. He said he came to save the world. Now, the problem is, and here I said all that to get to this. Believe it or not, it was all said to get to this point. How do I, when I hurt you, how do I fix it? How do I balance the scales of justice? How do I right the wrong that I've done to you or to myself? Now, to myself it's going to be a little easier. Because I can go to God and I can say, I'm wrong, I've damaged myself, I repent, I want to change. And that's what John said. Actually, what, when John came to this earth, he said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What John is saying is, change your ways. Quit sinning. That's what John saying. Change your life. And the reason why a lot of us change our lives is because we're afraid that we're going to have to face justice in the day of judgment. And we are. Hebrews 10, 30 and 31 says, We know Him that says, Vengeance belong unto me. I will repay, said the Lord. And again the Lord shall judge His people. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. We recognize that crime carries penalties. So when I do something wrong, I need to balance the scales of justice somehow. That has to be done. You remember a little fellow, if you have read your Bible and you've read the book of Luke, you ran across this fellow by the name of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. He was a tax collector. And when Jesus came through, the crowd pressed around Jesus, so much so, that Zacchaeus, who was a man of smaller stature, stature, couldn't see. So he crawled up in the sycamore tree. And our, our kids usually sing that song about Zacchaeus in the sycamore tree. But he came to observe. He wanted to see Jesus. And when Jesus saw him, he told him to come out of the tree. He was going to eat at his house that day. And when he did, Zacchaeus made a statement. He said, at verse 8, he said, half of my goods will I give to the poor. He was going to try to make things right. So he stole things. Now think about it. If I steal something from you, how do I make it right? you give it back, right? Give it back. Make your recompense, restitution. That's what Zacchaeus is saying. He said, I'm going I'm to give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from any man by false accusations, I restore him fourfold. I'm going to give him four times as much as I took from him. Now <laughs> if we if we set that policy. We would probably be less inclined to steal something from someone. So, how do we balance the scales of justice? Sometimes these things are simple, aren't they? This idea, this little fluffy word or fluffy phrase we use all the time, oh, I'm sorry, doesn't get it. It doesn't touch it. I hurt you. When I hurt you, I can hurt your feelings. Have you ever heard someone say, uh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's not true. I can hurt you, and you can hurt me. And simply to say, I'm sorry, does not fix it. It really doesn't fix it. It does not fix it from the sinner's point of view. Maybe you say, okay, I will forgive because God said, he will forgive me if I forgive you, in Matthew uh, chapter six, isn't it? In verse, in verse twelve, forgive others as we forgive, forgive us as, our sins as we forgive others that sin against us. So my problem is not when I sin. My problem is not forgiving someone who sins against me because I can do that. I know a lot of people struggle with this. They say, how is it that I can forgive? I I I I don't know how to forgive because I can't forget. I'll tell you what, it's a lot easier to forgive than it is to forget, to grant forgiveness or get forgiveness for what you've done and mend yourself. I don't know how I can fix it with myself. Paul couldn't fix it. Uh, Paul, Paul persecuted Christians for a long time when he was Saul, and he never forgot it. He couldn't get over it. He couldn't get over it. When I hurt you, I can ask you for forgiveness. And you can probably forgive me. But I'm not sure that it fixes me. I'm not sure it fixes me. I carry that with me. I carry it with me because I've done something to you. I've hurt you. I can repent and I can change my life. I can change what I'm doing. But I'm not sure... That, that it fixes me just by trying to fix you. Have you seen this illustration before? Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together again. When you break an egg, you can't fix it. You can't fix it. There's some eggs we break, we can't fix. They just can't be fixed. We wound someone, we wound them by our deeds, by our words, by our acts. We sin against someone and there's no fixing that. You just can't fix it. The thing to do is don't do it. That's what Jesus is saying. Quit hurting people. Why? Well, the consequences, maybe I don't, have to bear the consequences. But really, if I sin against you, the sin that I commit carries severe consequences. I've damaged something between us. I lose respect. I lose your respect. I lose your trust. If I lie to you, I've sinned and I've hurt you and I've hurt me. And, and hours and hours of regret and remorse will sweep down upon me because I don't know how to balance those scales I can't balance the scales I'm stuck with it I did it I cannot unring a bell Now some of the silly illustrations are I can't put the tooth, toothpaste back in the tube I can't unring a bell I can't take back what I've done I can say things wrong and bad to you and I can come to you and say I'm sorry, please forgive me and as a good Christian you probably do but I'll live with that remorse that I did that and I shouldn't have done that and Jesus came to save me from that sin and you know the only place that I can find forgiveness and the word forgiveness means to lift up the burden, take the burden off some things I'm going to have to live with that I did All of my life. I'm going to have to live with them. You may forget them, but I probably won't forget them. Things that I do to you. Jesus told a man, and this is so amazing to me, and the the statement that he makes is so, so impressive. In the book of Luke, in chapter 5, Jesus was in a house, and the crowd was pressing around, and there was a a man that was laid up on his bed. And he couldn't get up and come in and to be healed. And so his friends took him up on the roof and took the tiles off the roof and led him down in, into the midst of Jesus. And Jesus said something that is so, so broad and so expansive. He said, man, your sins are forgiven you. He took the man weight of the man's sins off of him, took it off of him, lifted the burden. And now he says to me, Bill, I know you've done things wrong, and I know there are pl- there are things that you can't fix. You can't balance the scales. There's no way you can do that. And so here I am. How do I how do I fix things between us? How do I fix things? Bad things that I did years ago that are they're still there. They're they're there. I did it. There's no two ways about it. And there's no way I can retract that what I did. I did it. How do I I lift the burden? I can't. But Jesus can. He can lift the burden. And then He tells me, go and sin no more, lest a worse thing. It just gets worse. If you sin, it just gets worse. It doesn't get any better. Go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. God help you do that.